This is episode 88 of the Equestrian Author Spotlight podcast. I'm Carly Cade, and today it's an honor to speak with Lenny Shulman. Lenny is an Emmy award-winning writer in television and film, as well as a frequent contributor to magazines and newspapers. He has served as features editor for Blood Horse Magazine and is the author of Justify, 111 Days to Triple Crown Glory and Ride of Their Lives, The Triumphs and Turmoil of Today's Top Jockeys. Today, we are talking about his new book, Head to Head, Conversations with a Generation of Horse Racing Legends. Interviews contained within the book include Hall of Fame trainer Bob Baffert, the late American sportswoman Penny Chenery, and of course, Saratoga's first lady of racing, Mary Lou Whitney, among many others. Now, let's get into the interview. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast a podcast featuring interviews with equestrian authors who love all things horses and writing about them. In each episode, you'll hear inspirational stories from horse book authors, including writing advice and marketing tips to help you write your very own horse book. If you're an author, aspire to be an author, or simply love horse books, then you are in the right place. I'm your host, Carly Cade, and creative writing makes my spurs jingle. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Equestrian Author Spotlight. I'm Carly Cade, and today I am honored to have Emmy Award-winning writer Lenny Shulman on the show with me. Welcome, Lenny. Hey, Carly. Thanks for having me. Good oh, I'm to see you. so excited to have you here, and uh, your uh, publisher just sent me your newest book, which we're going to talk today about, and it, it's fascinating. As people know who listen to my show, I always like to start with the question, Lenny, how have horses inspired your life? So uh, they've been very important to me because my dad took me to the races when I was a kid. And unfortunately, I lost my dad early on in life, you know, not long after that. And uh, I, I think that somehow being involved in this industry is, I, I won't say it's uh, in, inspired by his passing, but it, somehow I think it brings me closer to him kind of carrying on what he began with me to be involved with horses and be involved with the industry. So it's very personal to me being involved with horses. And for the past 20 years, it's just provided me with such a, a wonderful way of life. It's enabled me to realize a dream of, of living on a farm, which I've always wanted to do and never got to do until you know, I, I took a job with the Blood Horse and enabled me to live in Lexington. So they've really been important to me in a tangential way. I don't own any, uh, but they've been crucial to what my life has become. Oh, oh, and absolutely. I mean, those those affinities that we develop by sharing a passion with our parents, it certainly is a thread throughout our life. And and you've been writing about thoroughbreds and racing for more than 20 years. That's that's like incredible. What a testament to, to something your father started with you. That's very cool. Yeah, yeah, I, I very much enjoy it. And what I really like about it is after 20 years of TV and film work in Los Angeles, where you don't necessarily get to see your work come to fruition <laughs> unless you're really fortunate uh it's been great to have a weekly magazine to work on and plan out and and know that your work is actually being seen by people week in and week out so that that was really important to me also that was a cool aspect of it 
Oh, for sure. And and speaking of that, you are an Emmy Award winning writer in television and film, as well as obviously you just mentioned a frequent contributor to magazines and newspapers. You know, talk to us about what it was like working in that Hollywood world uh, and, and how that prepared you for the shift that you made where you, you came over to working in writing about horses. Yeah, so it's just a crapshoot really in Hollywood <laughs> and you it is who you know a lot of times, and it never goes in the direction that you think you're planning it out to go in. So it's really uh, got lemons make lemonade kind of thing. So my first job there was actually working on a children's show, which I had no, I mean, I've never had children. And <laughs> certainly that wouldn't have been plan A when I moved to Hollywood is to work on a children's show. But that's what happened, and it turned out to be great. It was a show called Kids Incorporated, mm -hmm. which a lot of people have heard of and really have a place in their heart for it. And I stayed on that for about eight or nine years and became a producer and a head writer. And we started the career of, I know you're from the music business. <laughs> Fergie was one of the original kids on Kids Incorporated uh, mm -hmm. from the Black Eyed Peas, of course, is how she's greatly known now. but. She was Sarah Ferguson back then, and she was probably seven or eight years old when she started on the show. Wow. Uh, Jennifer Love Hewitt, who, who has become obviously a well-known actress, starred on that show, and she was probably five years old. Uh, Mario Lopez, who's famous for being Mario Lopez, uh, was also an original kid on that show. So anyway, that, that was a lot of fun. So that was my first gig in Hollywood. And from there, just to show you how crazy the needle bounces around, uh, literally, my next gig was going from a children's show to writing for Andrew Dice Clay. So <laughs> if there is a greater disparity between a children's show and writing HBO specials with Andrew Clay, I don't know what that disparity would be, uh, <laughs> but, but that was the job. The Emmy came uh, on a football show when Fox Network got the NFL. I uh, was able to write a primetime special to kind of introduce America to Fox and, and their NFL coverage. And I was fortunate enough to, to win an Emmy Award for that uh, show with Terry Bradshaw and Jimmy Johnson and Howie Long. And, uh, and, uh, and finally, my love of horses made me write uh, a way to some magazines here in Kentucky. And one of them ended up having an opening. And writing is writing, even though it was TV and film and it was a newspaper before that. And this became magazine, and uh, I just loved it so much, and I'm so glad that something opened up that enabled me to to jump over here and do horses for a long time. Wow, what an illustrious career, and so <laughs> different. I mean, you have to probably crack open your head and go different directions with your brainwaves to do children, and then comedy, and then football, and then you took it all the way around to horses. That's so amazing. And then you, you said it's kind of like make make lemonade out of lemons. I, I've heard from some other people who've been on the show that Hollywood, you you really develop a tough skin, but also you learn how to uh, develop relationship because so much of that world is relationships. And I'm sure that's helped you as you moved into doing the work that you do now, interviewing people and I, I mean, prominent people in the thoroughbred industry. I would yeah, that, that, that's a great point, Carly, because you know rejection is a big part of Hollywood, you know, mm -hmm. it, it, you know, you have to do a lot to get to get a job. But it, it did teach me 
as I became the features editor of the Blood Horse, and I became the person who other people pitched ideas to. So it was kind of I'm on the other side of the fence. And what it really taught me was to be courteous and respectful of everybody, because I think as a writer and probably anybody else, the worst thing in the world is to apply for a job or submit material for, you know, acceptance and never hear back from somebody. Mm -hmm. To me, that's that's just the rudest thing in the world. I mean, if somebody doesn't like it and, and they say, no, this isn't for us, I, I respect that. You know, mm -hmm. that that's great. It tells you where you stand. But never to, to get an answer from people, I just found to be the worst thing in the world. So really what it taught me was to deal with people with respect, courtesy, if I could help people who maybe weren't on the right track and say, hey, this would be better if you did this, that, or the other thing, uh, you know, or send them in, a, in another direction to somebody else. You know, that to me is some of the, the, the best lessons that I learned that I could maybe help somebody else along down the road with. Oh, that's wonderful. And I wish everyone could be like that, right? You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. but you took that that lesson and you're, you're applying it to your life now when you're in the position to say yes or no to someone. And, and that's really fantastic. Getting feedback from someone like you, I think definitely would help steer someone in the right direction for sure. Yeah. And it's never more satisfying than when you help somebody along and you see them grow and mature as a writer. Mm -hmm. And eventually you can accept work from them and, and print it and give them that thrill mm. of, of being published by some, you know, an entity that they respect. And uh, I've had that a few times. And I, I don't think there's anything more rewarding than that. It's great. Uh, yes. And we all rise by lifting others, right? And there's this whole conversation around, you know, the, the first reach out might be a no, but you keep going and hitting those no's until you find the one yes. And at, it sounds like at the light, the light of the, the, the tunnel reaching out to you is that eventually people can get to a yes if they follow yeah. your feedback. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mean, I, I believe in karma. I believe it comes around again. So, you know, <laughs> if you can help somebody, it doesn't cost you anything more to, to be nice to somebody. Yeah. <laughs> total, total words of wisdom there. So you've uh, you've mentioned a couple times that you 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 know you you serve as the features edit you served as the features editor for Blood Horse magazine. You're the author of books about the thoroughbred industry, and you've covered the racing industry for more than 20 years. Now, I think you've already touched on what compelled you to write about the thoroughbred industry as your relationship with your father, but uh, it's such a kind of a niche space like how did yeah. you just burrowed into it from submitting articles and finally someone said yes because you wound up in a very prestigious place I mean you're talking with celebrities legends uh, you know very Sorry. prominent people in the industry so zipping from LA to Lexington like was there a transition period for you or absolutely I had uh, when I lived in LA I had become a really big fan of racing and went to Hollywood Park and Santa Anita every Saturday. I played baseball every Sunday, but I went to the track every Saturday. But getting to Lexington, I realized there was an awful lot as a racing fan that I did not know about the racing industry, which is vastly different than simply racing. I mean, racing is part of it, but the whole breeding industry, you know, the sales uh, of horses, so yeah, there was a learning curve that had to be climbed fairly quickly, um, and I hardly knew everything, but there are so many great professionals on the staff there at that time that it was a pretty quick learning curve. But I would say 
yeah, getting to know the breeding industry uh, was really the, the steepest learn for me because, you know, you go to the races on Saturday and you don't know anything about why somebody bred this horse or what the science is behind it or, you know, the whole broodmare to the stallion and what you look for in this one and now and stuff. So, yeah, there was a lot to learn there, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it felt seamless. You know, it, it really felt... I think part of it is when you work on a weekly magazine, you don't have a lot of time to panic or, or look back. You pretty much have to, when one hits the printer, you're you're pretty much into the next one. So there's not a lot of time to do anything except move forward. But I, I would say that was the that was the biggest learn for me was, was that part of the industry. Now, given that you've been doing this for as long as you have, can you go to the track in no pedigree and breeding and who bred what and be like, that one's going to win? Can you do that now? Yeah, so the more I know, the less I know. So so I, I actually gamble a whole lot less than I used to before I got into the industry. And I, I think part of it is you, you learn to like some people more than you like other people. And so those prejudices mm. kind of seep into who you want to root for in a given race. And that's probably not the best way to handicap or gamble on, on the horses or anything else. So I've kind of learned to just enjoy it. And believe me, I am an outlier on this. And they would probably drum me out of the press box if people realized that I hardly ever gamble anymore because everybody up there is gambling on every single race. So I'm not typical at all of what goes on there. But uh, yeah, I, I've learned it's probably best for me to, to put the gambling aside and just enjoy it and uh, as a fan and as a participant. But I still feel like I'm a fan more than I am a, you know, stakeholder in it. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. And, and that, that's uh, wise, right? You know, gambling yeah. yeah. to the side is wise as far as I'm concerned now. And, and then, you know, so you were doing that and, and you've written books, like, so you're, you've taken your writing skills and you're, you're honing them and you're working on the magazine. And before we get to your newest book, you're also the author of, Justify 111 Days to Triple Crown Glory and Ride of Their Lives, The Triumphs and Turmoil of Today's Top Jockeys. Can you share with us a little bit about these two books? I'm sorry for all the alliteration there, but uh, <laughs> yeah, so the jockey book came first. That was, I want to say, about 2003. I had, I had realized that I had done all these stories on all of these great jockeys, you know, and they were kind of starting to pass from the scene a little bit. Back when I was in California, it was the golden era for jockeys out there. And all these guys are in the Hall of Fame now, Lafitte Pinkai and Chris McCarron and Gary Stevens and Eddie Delahousse, Pat Day, who was in the Midwest and Jerry Bailey. But I had done articles on all these guys and I thought, gee, you know, this might be a a neat book to kind of compile all of these in one place. And, uh, and so I did, and I went back and re-interviewed, you know, them a lot. And the thing about jockeys is almost every one of them has come from a, some kind of terrible problem early in their lives that they've overcome. Mm. Uh, a lot of them have got hooked into substance abuse. Uh, a lot of them had terrible childhoods and backgrounds. A lot of them were, were, were not good people when they were young and had to overcome a lot of things. Uh, they, they constantly have, have to overcome weight. Mm. A lot of them have a lack of education, a lack of proper education. So when they do become successful, even the lucky ones that make a lot of money, 
they become unlucky because they don't know what they're doing with their money and they don't know what they're doing with their lives and they tend to get in with the wrong crowd. So they've all had this kind of story of having to overcome adversity mm. to reach the heights that they've eventually reached. So that became uh, the overarching theme of that book. And I thought it turned out really well uh, with those guys. So that worked out really well. The Justify book was great because I was out in California doing a story on Bob Baffert. And uh, we had a great interview. And he said, this was in March of 2018, February or March. And after the interview, he said to me, would you like to come see the Kentucky Derby winner? Yeah. Well, the Kentucky Derby is, you know, two months down the road. And when Baffert asked you that, okay, come show me the Kentucky Derby. So we walked over and he took me to the stall of this horse that had run once. He had run once. And here was this, the most gorgeous thoroughbred you have ever laid eyes on filling up the stall. Mm -hmm. And we got to hang out for 10 minutes with him and mess around with him. And, and that was justified. And the next Sunday he went out and won his second race. But nobody in the world would think that a horse with that little experience would be able to even get to the Kentucky Derby, let alone win it. And uh, then he did what he did. He won the Santa Anita Derby and then the Kentucky Derby and then the Triple Crown. And I thought to myself, my goodness, I've got an attachment to this horse. I was there on the ground floor. This is an amazing story. No horse. And that's why the title is 111 days, because that was from his first race to winning the Belmont Stakes was 111 days. No horse has ever come close to doing that in that compressed amount of time. So it became a really neat story. And being here in Kentucky, I got to meet all the people who had their hands on him at every stage of his development, from breeding him to the yearling sale, to training him as a two-year-old, to, you know, Baffert and his group, and then back to the people who stand them and stuff. So it just became a natural. I so said I was kind of made to write this book, you know, and and I found uh, Triumph Press out of Chicago was nice enough to to pay me and, and publish it. And uh, it really turned out well. I'm really proud of that. Oh, what a fantastic journey. I mean, you were uh, there. You yeah. were there when he said, do you want to meet the Kentucky Derby winner? Who knew? Yeah. And, 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 if you, and if you know Bafford, you, he's always got something up his sleeve. And he had a very accomplished horse named Mackenzie at the time who had already won a grade one race. Mm -hmm. And when he said that, anybody would have thought, oh, he's going to take me and show me McKenzie. But knowing Baffert, I knew that he had something else in mind completely. And sure <laughs> enough, he had this other horse. McKenzie ended up getting injured and couldn't compete in the Triple Crown and came back and became a fantastic horse anyway. But, but I just knew that there was something unusual the way he asked me that question that and that's kind of the way it was with Justify. It all fell into place with, with him and me. And I just, you know, you have that affinity for certain horses. I know mm -hmm. I, I do. It doesn't happen to me a lot. But when I have that affinity, it, it's a lifelong bond between me and, and that certain horse. And it's only happened maybe three or four times to me. But it's, it's very powerful when it does happen. So I mm -hmm. guess I was the one who was made to write that book. Absolutely. It's like the universe plunked you right there at the right time yeah. to do the right thing I, that, and write this story about this wonderful, majestic, incredible horse. That's yeah. you documented his journey. That's so cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Now, before we start talking about your newest book, the transition from writing articles and working in Hollywood to writing a book, was that an easy transition for you to make? Or is that, was that another adjustment period? Like, did you go to the outline? Like, did you, how did you, how did you shift your mind to writing books? Yeah, I, th I think it's intimidating to, to answer your question. <laughs> you know, I, I think the book thing was more intimidating to me than maybe any of that other stuff. So mm. the jockey thing was, was kind of made it easy because it was a dozen stories. So in a sense, it was, you know, 12 short stories rather than having to think about, oh, my God, I have to write this this book, you know. So so I think that made it easier, the fact that it was broken up the way it was so definitively. Uh, the Justify book, yeah, uh, a little bit so. I was just so lucky that I had already written stories about the man who bred the horse. Mm. I had already written about Baffert a lot. I had already written about Mike Smith, his jockey, back in the in the jockey book that I did years before. So I wasn't starting from ground zero to speak. I obviously had to go and re-interview all these people because you have to go into so much more depth and detail when you're writing a book. But I think that helped me along. One thing that didn't help me was the publisher said, we want to publish this book in the middle of July sometime. And I said, no, 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 no. <laughs> this has to come out before the Kentucky Derby because interest in horse racing peaks before the Kentucky Derby. And then it goes down. You have to get this out before. And I said, okay, well, can you write it in two months? <laughs> so, so, so I dug my own grave there, basically. Uh, and what I'm trying to say is I didn't have time to be intimidated by that book. I was in such a panic to get it done so quickly that I just threw myself into it. And at this point, I was still working full time at the Blood Horse. So it was really nights and weekends that I had oh, you wow. know, to, to, to do the book. So I guess I didn't have time to think about it. And, and so it was less intimidating to me that way. I've also written a couple of novels uh, mm -hmm. that I've self-published. Uh, and I think those are more teaching yourself the form of fiction and how to try to do that. And I am far from mastering that. I would <laughs> be the first one to admit. But I think to answer your question, that was probably the biggest jump style-wise to try to, you know, do fiction as opposed to nonfiction. I, I think that's a further leap that I'm still mm -hmm. trying to get comfortable with. But the more you do it, hopefully the, the better you get at it and the more natural it comes to you. So. Couldn't agree more. And uh, what, what I think is great is like, at least you had, it's like kind of that write what you know thing. Like you had touch, touch points with what you were telling in your, your first two, the Justify book and then the one about the jockeys. And yeah. I totally agree with you on the novel writing. And you are so right. Keep writing. I mean, you've been writing for the majority of our life, but we always get better. <laughs> Just keep plugging away. And, you know, none of us have written our greatest novel or work yet, right? I always feel like it's still like out there floating. You just got to keep moving forward. <laughs> no, it, it, it's so true what you say. Uh, and, and the advice I give anybody is just write every mm -hmm. day. If it's in a journal, if it's in a diary, if it's a letter to a good friend, if it's an article, if it's whatever it is, just every day sit down and try to do something, you know, just put your thoughts down. If you're watching something on TV and it hits you, just 
write it down, you know, don't lose that thought because it <laughs> really can germinate into something significant. And you're, you're so right. You just have to keep doing it all the time. Yep. And I love that you said, write it down. Like, don't, if you have this fleeting thought, don't, don't let that go away. Like I hop out of bed in the middle of the night and write something down and then it becomes something. But if I don't, I don't remember it in the morning. And I'm like, yeah. I know I, I lay there and I'm like, oh, I don't want to get up. But then I'm like, I know I'm going to lose it. I know. And then I get up and I sit in the closet to not disturb my husband and turn on the light. And I like write like 30 pages and then I shut it and I go back to bed. <laughs> yeah, no, because you want to kill yourself if you if you lose it. And, mm-hmm. and you thought it was great when you had that thought and, and you don't do it at the spur <laughs> of the moment. You just you just want to kill yourself. At <laughs> <No>. that <point>. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> what was that thing I was thinking about? I know it was really good. Right. Gone. this is so fun now let's talk about head to head conversations with a generation of horse racing legends this was fascinating i love this book uh and thank you for the advanced copy i really appreciate it i mean i was but what i'm most one of the things i'm really moved about is your introduction what a thoughtful lovely introduction that you wrote with wit and humor and sensitivity it was just really beautiful and then and then in each chapter you'd kind of do this wrap-up introduction kind of allowing people to understand what's going on but but before we dive into that stuff it's really just thoughtful uh talk to us about this book what inspired it what it's about yeah so around the time that i uh decided to retire from the blood horse and I, i still do freelance writing for them but i gave up my position on the staff it it was just time uh I think 20 year gradations is really good for me. I spent 20 years in Hollywood mm. uh, and it was 20 years on the blood horse. And I, I just want to spend more time with my dogs and on the farm and not have to go into the office every day. And my timing was great because it was right before the pandemic. So it really worked out anyway. But so I, I had uh, at the end of 2019, I retired from full time work. And I thought, you know, I, I've accumulated again, I, I, I have accumulated this body of work with and I'm not pushing myself. So many interesting interviewees that I've had the privilege to to talk to and and had the privilege of having them trust me and open up to me, mm-hmm. that, that it just kind of became this, hey, you know, it might be a good idea to collect all of this in, in one place because it, it's a slice of history. It, it, it works as a horse racing book, but to me, it's also a window into a definitive period in the horse racing industry of guys who, you know, already are dying off or, or will soon. And, and, and again, you lose it if you don't write it down It's the exact same thought we were just talking about. So I thought it'd be really neat to kind of compile this as a piece of history that also works, you know, as a current piece. And I, I was also fortunate enough to not only save my articles, but to save the interviews you know, to save the transcripts of the of the Q&As. So this book is not a collection of my articles. It's a collection of the actual questions and answers of the interviews. So even if you hate my writing, you can still like this book, which is <laughs> it's a win-win. So that, that was kind of the germ of it. And as I went back over this, I realized, gosh, there's a lot of really, really good material here, mm-hmm. you know, and... Uh, and it took a lot of time to edit it down and get it to where, you know, move move the material around and get it to where it, it made sense. And and it also broke up so neatly into categories. It did. I thought, 
gee, I, I've, I've interviewed so many women who've accomplished so much, you know, in the business. Oh, that's a great section. Boom. Mm -hmm. I've, I've interviewed a number of celebrities who made their name in other fields, but love horse racing and are participants. Boom. So that's a section. Uh, Kentucky Derby winners is a section. Veterinarians who changed the sport so much is a section. Mm -hmm. Legends. I've been so lucky to talk to people who just were at, at the top of the game uh, in various facets of it. So that became a section. So it, it almost made itself, you know, as far as plotting it out. And again, it, it just organically really fell into place. And um, and I'm just so happy. And again, I'm not tooting my own horn here because it's not my writing. I'm just so happy with the way it came out because these people have accomplished so much and have so much to share with people who are interested in it that I, I just feel like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a medium between them and the audience because it, it, it's been great to share all of that with people. Yeah, I it it was fascinating. I mean, the interesting thing is like you recapped it so beautifully before the interview started, but it was fascinating seeing the interviews happen in their own words. Like, you know, yeah. Bob Baffert was, you're talking about how he's a jokester and you told us how he put the trophy on his head and, you know, I just, I just loved it. But particularly uh, part two is women of the thoroughbred world. I really love that you framed it that way, because I think, you know, sometimes I don't think people realize how involved women are, are or were in that world. And I think it's kind of a, a interesting thing to talk about uh, how women, why do you think in the thoroughbred industry, women have been kind of at the helm of sitting on boards, uh, you know, running farms, uh, breeding horses. Like, why do you think it was not as poo-pooed upon as some other industries uh, of, of the time? Yeah, so I think, you know, the, the thoroughbred industry was the sport of kings, you know, certainly started out that way. And so it was wealthy people uh, mm. who could afford to breed and race horses. And it didn't matter whether those wealthy people were men or women. Mm. Uh, some women got into it because they had wealthy husbands, but some women had the wealth themselves and, and were the, the, the people involved. The Whitney family uh, is, is full of people, uh, people of both genders, it seems odd to say, but, but you know, both men and women uh, through, the, through the generations uh, headed the Whitney stable. Yeah, I don't know why. I guess in other sports, uh, I guess it, it, it's separate but equal. I, I mean, it's great that the WNBA exists and, mm -hmm. you know, women's softball exists and, and, you know, so many women's leagues. But horse racing, and I write this in the book, doesn't get enough credit as being the only sport where it's a level playing field between men and women. Women participate in the same exact way, in the same exact league. You know, not separate and equal, but together. Mm -hmm. And and so I think, you know, it's something to be celebrated. And, you know, so many uh, women have made such a unbelievable. I mean, you can still go around Lexington right now. Helen Alexander, who I wrote about, uh, you know, the, the descendant of the great King Ranch, but she has her own breeding operation. Mm -hmm. That's great. Barbara Banky got into it because her husband, Jess Jackson, from Kendall Jackson wineries got into it and he passed on and she really didn't have an affinity for it, but 
she picked up the ball and there is no better breeding operation than Barbara Banky Stone Street today. Absolutely unbelievable. Josephine Abercrombie, uh, her father introduced her to it. She mm -hmm. took a love to it. She built up Pin Oak Stud into one of the great breeding operations. And it happens time and time. Mary Lou Whitney, who we just lost a couple of years ago. Charlotte Weber has run her own breeding operation in Florida for 50 years, Live Oak, incredibly successful. Mm -hmm. So it, it's great. And I'm just so happy that the light bulb went on and said, hey, this is this is a trend and, and it's really something to be celebrated. Yeah, I was just, I, I loved it when I saw that chapter. I was like, this is so cool, uh, the way it was framed up. But also I have to believe there's a little bit of that I mean, women love horses, men love horses too, but there's yes. like this incredible yes. bond that women have yes. with horses. And I have to believe that's part of the reason why they, way back when they, you know, that they were able to be in the industry the way that they were, just the bonding. I, I don't you're, know. You're, you're so right. The, the, the phrase, you know, horse, horse crazy young girl, <laughs> it, it, there, there's truth behind that. There, there, girls love horses. The thing is, and to follow through with your point, I think like 80% of the veterinarians coming up today are women. Yeah. You know, and I can tell you that the vast majority of sports writers coming up in horse racing are also women. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, there aren't a lot of outlets for them these days. Uh, but you're so right. I, I mean, it, it's those occupations are becoming women dominated actually so yeah you're absolutely right that that horse crazy young girl thing is a very real thing <laughs> i love that you know that yes and yeah. then, i mean if my daddy had a thoroughbred racing farm and he wanted me to continue it on i for sure would raise my hand and not even <laughs> i would not sneeze at that at all uh, yeah but yeah i i love that and and you know over the over your career, you've perfected the art of relationship, I hear. But like in conducting an interview, like how how do you interview a legend? Like how do you prepare for an interview? Like talk to us about the art of the interview. Yeah, so I, I think you have to know your stuff. Mm. You know, it, it pays to educate yourself. So before I interview anybody, legend or not, I try to read up as much as I can about them. And, and, you know, try to carry on an intelligent conversation. Touching <laughs> on what you said a little earlier, horse racing has its own language. The horse business has its own language. It's a very niche industry, and it has its own nomenclature mm -hmm. and phrases. And, and you're so right. You really have to be fluent in that language to, to get along, especially when you're interviewing somebody who's been in it all their life. And when, when when I go to Penny Chenery's house, I mean, the woman's a legend. I, the, the woman is a giant. She's owned the greatest racehorse of the last 100 years. She's done everything there is to do. You really want to try to be on as good footing and sound footing with her as you can and not come off as an idiot. So I think <laughs> educating yourself is great. And, and being yourself, I think, you know, trying not to be somebody you're not, just kind of be yourself. And if you can make a joke and have them laugh at it, and that puts them at ease mm -hmm. and makes it easier for them to share their thoughts with you rather than thinking, oh, this guy's a jerk or this guy doesn't know anything or 
what time is it? I can't wait to get out of here. I want to make lunch. Uh, you know, so make it enjoyable for them as much as possible, you know, and, and, and not make it so much a question and answer, but a conversation. Mm. You know, let, let's have a conversation about this. And, and a lot of people are ill at ease. They don't like to be interviewed or they're not used to being interviewed. And you really have to get them relaxed in order for them to share the thoughts that you want to share. Get, get beyond the perfunctory and get to the good stuff, you know, get to the good stories. And, and so I think you really try to have to make them be as comfortable as possible with you. And then as you get a little bit of a reputation, maybe it gets easier because, oh, I read this story that you did. It was really good. Or I saw this or so-and-so told me, you know, that it's okay to talk to you. And so that, you know, hopefully, hopefully your reputation is good and, and, and it becomes easier to make that entrance to people. But, but yeah, all of those things, but really trying to be as comfortable as you can, be yourself and try to get the subject as, as comfortable as they can be. Mm-hmm. I love what you said there. Educate yourself. Know who this person is. You know, <laughs> and yeah, get, get yeah, you don't want right. to be an idiot. <laughs> yeah, but then, but then I love that you said it's a it's a conversation. It's not just a Q and A sort of thing. It's like let's talk to each other. And and I can see yeah. how you'd so put someone at easy at ease when talking with you. I mean, you're you're fun. You're bright. You're optimistic. You you know you know your stuff. And uh, that that's so great. Like on the back of the book, uh, it says that. There's a, I think there's a, a, a testimonial that says you've been able to coax the innermost thoughts out of the sport's most notable headline make makers. How did that make you feel to hear that? Because I, I do see the truth in that. As, as I was reading the book, I'm like, wow, yeah. you know, she, they just admitted that they said that. You know, it was like, yeah, cool. yeah. So Penny Chenry, who's the first chapter in the book, uh. I interviewed her twice, once when I first moved here, and then once she had passed 90 years of age, actually, the second time I mm-hmm. interviewed her. And she was in a mode of unburdening herself mm-hmm. at that point. And she was ready to tell things that she didn't want to tell earlier in her life. And she had gotten Secretariat defeated several times after his Triple Crown because she made mistakes with him. Mm-hmm. She ran him once when he had a fever. She ran him once when she was substituting him for another horse named Riva Ridge, who she owned, uh, because it was muddy and Riva Ridge hated to run in the mud. So she, oh, we'll just stick Secretariat in this race. And he <laughs> hadn't been properly trained. So she unburdened herself and said, you know, I was greedy. I thought this horse could do everything and he couldn't. I was wrong. I made mistakes. I did this and I did that. And uh, so that was such a thrill to be kind of the conduit to to tell that story that really not too many people knew at that point. And the first call I got after that came out was from a man named Ron Turcott, who was Secretariat's jockey for his entire career. And he said, you just made me the happiest man on earth. Because I was the one who was getting blamed for Secretariat losing for all these years. Everybody was blaming me, like, oh, this guy's a jerk. How can you lose on Secretariat? You know, he's the greatest horse that anybody's ever seen. So he said, thank you so much for that. And, you know, she finally admitted that it wasn't my fault. It was it was her fault. So, so yeah, that stuff is just a great thrill when you get that. And uh, 
really, I've, I've been fortunate enough to, to get that with a lot of the, the stories in here. So I just feel really lucky and fortunate to, that, that she knew me enough to trust me, but also it was fortuitous timing where she was ready to, to, to tell the real story, so to speak. Yeah, that that was fascinating, and and how awesome to be the conduit. But again, you're you're capturing a piece of history, and you're also clearing up things that are out there in the space around the industry. I mean, you got a call from his jockey saying thank you. I mean, that's amazing. That's what writing can do, and that's what being a good interviewer can do. Also, it's just you know create knowledge that people didn't have out there, an opportunity for people to share things that they're holding and an opportunity for someone to say, wow, there's the truth. That's really what's so, you know, so yeah, that's yeah. what, that's what good writing does. Now. Okay. I, I just, I'm curious to ask you this question because you did write the justify book and you saw what a triple crown winner looks like um, in the history of the triple crown. Only 13 horses have won all three races. What are your thoughts being around this industry for so long and what it takes, what kind of horse it takes to actually win the Triple Crown? Yeah, uh, a special one uh, mm. is, is, is the easy answer and the short answer. Uh, a, a good horse and even a great horse is, is not necessarily enough. I, there's a lot of luck. Look, you know, it's <laughs> five races. It's three races in a five week period. And uh, an awful lot can go wrong in any race at any given time. The Kentucky Derby has 20 horses in it. It's a cattle charge when they leave that gate and horses smack into each other and bounce off one another. And you can lose your best chance right then coming out of the gate if you're unlucky. So it takes a lot of luck. Uh, it takes a great jockey. Um, I think horses, the two that I witnessed live, obviously, were American Pharaoh and Justify, both superb horses. I think technically they both had a way of getting over the ground that had no wasted energy to it. They didn't pick their legs up high to move forward. It was almost like a lawnmower skimming over the ground. So I, I, I think most of the great ones have that certain way of going. Uh, and, and Bafford has talked about that and talks about it a little in, in his chapters in the book. So I think it's economy of motion. I think it's uh, constitution and confirmation to be a strong horse to, you know, it used to be nothing for these horses to run every week. Now we're in an era where if a horse runs every month, you think it's an iron horse. So again, to win three races in five weeks is not something they'll ever be asked to do again in their lives. So it takes a very strong horse to be able to to come back and do that after two races, to come back and run a mile and a half in the Belmont Stakes, which is probably the longest they're, they're going to be uh, asked to run. Also, it also takes a great trainer. I know as we're sitting here, it's not it's not the greatest moment for Bob Baffert, but mm. it really takes a trainer who knows how to get a horse ready, knows his way around horses, and 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 knows that Triple Crown series and how much to push a horse to win the Derby and how much to leave in the tank and leave in reserve for what's coming down the road. A lot of trainers and being at the Kentucky Derby every year for 20 years, there are some trainers there who may be there for their first time and they're just happy to be there, you know, <laughs> and they really don't know how to get their horse ready to do this. They just mm -hmm. don't, they don't have the experience. Mm -hmm. And so Bafford is worth a touchdown again, you know, 
seven points in, in football parlance versus any of these other guys. He just he's been there. He knows how to do it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that having the right connections again is another factor in it. But you need a great, 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 super great racehorse and. Mm-hmm. So many great ones have won one or two of those three races and they just can't get that third one. Mm-hmm. And every year it was like, it was almost Lucy in the Peanuts cartoon pulling the football away from Charlie Brown <laughs> about to kick it. This year it's got to happen. This year it's for sure going to happen. And it just didn't happen time and time again. It was 37 years between affirmed in 1978 and American Pharaoh in 2015. So that is. That is a long period of time without someone being able to do that. So you know it's a special horse that 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 it requires. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That, I love I love that. And the 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 running with like a lawnmower over the grass. That I've, yeah. I've never heard that before. But that's fascinating. I like. I love. I think that makes a lot of sense. And then when you met these horses, did you see? like a magic about them? Like, did they have a spark in their eye or did you feel like they were more playful or they had a bigger heart or they were really proud? Like, cause you've seen them in person. Like, did you get any vibes off of them that were different from the other horses you've met? Yeah, I wish I could say I'm that good. Uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but really I'm not other than what we talked about earlier with okay. Justify where you just knew this was a special horse standing in front of you. No question about it. It's happened to me a couple of other times. There was a horse named Bernardini uh, mm-hmm. who, when, when Barbaro got injured at the start of the Preakness, uh, Bernardini was the horse who won the Preakness that day and went on and won the Travers and all these other great, and has become an amazing stallion. And, mm-hmm. and he was, he was one and there was a filly named Phone Shatter who was just so statuesque. Uh, then she became a champion two months after I first laid eyes on her and kind of identified her. Other than that, no, I don't want to even pretend that I could look at one and tell you that that's, that that's true. But uh, some people maybe can, but I, I'm just not that good. Yeah, and it's like you said, it's a combination of factors. You know, there's so many things that go into making this happen, including yeah. luck in a really special horse. So that makes a lot yeah, of sense. And, and human connections also. Very, oh yeah. Very important. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. It's all who you know, which we yeah. <laughs> touched on right at the beginning of this interview. That's right. So, so you, this book is uh, your publisher is University Press of Kentucky. Uh, how did how did you hook up with them for this one? Because you mentioned that someone else published your other book. Yeah, well, they're very prominent around the area where I live, and they they come out with a lot of horse racing. Mm -hmm. Obviously, they're in the middle of the horse racing capital of the world, so they do a lot of other outside titles, but they do a lot of horse racing Mm -hmm. uh, work, and I just thought that this was a perfect title for for them, and and they were immediately uh, in agreement, and that made it easy. Uh, And since I've been, I've actually sold another title to them, which I'm really happy about. I have a biography of uh, Phyllis George, who um, people might remember. She was a Miss America who became really a pioneering women's sportscaster. She was the first woman to be a, a sports reporter on a network you know, show, the NFL Today. was her th- And she also ended up marrying a guy who became a governor of Kentucky, uh, cool. who, who bought Kentucky fried chicken from the colonel. Uh, so she ended up being the first lady of Kentucky. So 
again, it was a Kentucky theme, and, and she had such an interesting life, so many aspects to it. So I sold that to uh, University Press of Kentucky, and that'll be coming out next year. So I'm really pleased about that. So, so we've built up a nice little relationship with that publisher now. So, Fantastic. Well, yeah. I'm excited about your net, your next book too. I mean, that they're just rolling, they're rolling out here. And so with, with this one, uh, head to head, how are you reaching your readers? Uh, how are you working together with your publisher to get the word out about this book? I mean, obviously being on podcasts like this makes a yeah, lot of sense, but. Absolutely. <laughs> I, I just did a local radio show today. Um, there's a serious XM radio show called at the races that reaches a lot of people in the, in the industry. I'm kind of a dinosaur. I don't mind admitting to you. So I'm not, I'm not a great social media uh, presence. (laughs) Uh, Facebook, I'm okay with. I've never been a tweeter. Uh, I'm not really that great on that, which I'm sure works to my detriment. Uh, I tend to be a private person and I tend not to want to put my business out on the street necessarily all the time. So, Mm -hmm. so uh, I'm not great with that stuff, but uh, I am doing signings. I, I go up to Saratoga every summer, and I have some great signings uh, lined up up there. Uh, one at the National Racing Museum and Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. and one at, at the best bookstore in town there. So I, I'm really happy about that. And I may have one or two people from the book sign with me up there, which would be Awesome. That'd be so uh, awesome. <laughs> yeah, because I, I can't draw flies, but uh, some of these people have much bigger names than I do. So so I'm hoping that becomes successful. And uh, yeah, I'm just trying to uh, use my connections in the business. I do have, I don't know, in my, in my phone, I probably have about 1,500 contacts, all of whom will be getting a text message uh, <laughs> to, to buy this book. And uh, I just hope it, it takes off from there because I think anybody who's interested in any aspect of the horse racing business will, will honestly will really get something out of, out of this book. Um, so I'm just hoping that, that maybe the momentum builds a little bit and word of mouth gets out there. Oh, a hundred percent. Anybody, anybody who's interested in horses and legends in history and especially racing will love this. I mean, I, I could not put it down. I was so fascinated. I had to keep myself from skipping. Around. I was like wanting to skip around. I'm like, ooh, who else is in? You know, it's like you've interviewed Bo Derek for heaven's sakes. I mean, that, I mean, so cool. And the the gentleman from the Sopranos. That, that one surprised me. But it's it's like really, really, really interesting. We talked about intimidating before. Probably the most intimidated I I got was was meeting Sam Shepard and, <laughs> and, and interviewing him. I mean, my God, you know, just a giant in the acting world and the theater as a playwright as an author i mean this guy was and he loved he had five mares and he loved breeding horses just loved it but but pretty intimidating guy to go and meet and he he actually paid me the most left-handed compliments i ever got (laughs) after the article came out uh, i i saw him and he goes yeah that wasn't bad for a journalist (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> coming from sam shepherd i thought I'll, I'll accept that and move on i'm not gonna i'm not gonna bitch about that at all so well i mean yeah i mean it's just it's a it's a fascinating book and i love what you said too about uh social media you know being a little old school that yeah. the, there's all these conversations like you have to be there you have to be here but i think what you're doing 
well, or what you have done correctly is you, A, you have, you have a brand, you have, you already have a reputation, you, people know who you are and you are continuing to write books and write articles. So it's like, you can waste all this time on social media doing all these things, or you can be writing, you know? So it's like, yeah. I think, I think yeah. writing yeah. and just focusing on the writing is the right path forward. So it, it really is a black hole, isn't it? I mean, I catch myself on YouTube sometimes. And, <laughs> you know, I could come up two and a half hours later. It's like, what have I done here? You know, I, I just, I've just watched three hours of Rodney Dangerfield routines. You know, <laughs> uh, so, so you're so right. I, I mean, you're so right. I, and I'm guilty of it. You know, I'm Facebook and. But, yeah. but sometimes you have to put that down and say, mm -hmm. I need to write for the next three hours. And thank you. You just made me feel better about that. So. <laughs> Good. Yeah. I mean, but, and it's designed on purpose to be addictive, you know, with all the recommendations that come up at the end. Right. And then you're like, right. and then it's like, right. wait, I didn't write anything. <laughs> you know, it's so, that's so funny. How did they know that? Yeah. 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 It's, it's amazing. It's, and, you know, you are a prolific writer. You write. Like, do you, how do you structure your day? Since we just talked about getting lost in social media, like, how do you get the words on the page? Like, do you have a particular time you like to write or do you write when the muse comes to you? Like, what's your style? Yeah, I like the mornings. I, mm. I like the mornings. I, I feel like I want to get it accomplished, during, you know, and, and then I don't feel so bad, whatever else I do during the course of the day. Uh, we talked earlier, I, I have four dogs, so I tend not to sleep late anyway, even even though I don't have to go to the office anymore, I, I don't sleep late. And I, I love taking them out and getting a morning walk into mm -hmm. me and them. So so I tend to be up, you know, at a pretty early hour. And I, I do like to attack it early in the day. I, I feel like I'm more focused then. And uh, again, if I screw up and do something else during the course of the day, I feel like I've got it in the bank you know, that I've at least done this. So I, I would say I'm good for three to five hours, you know, nine to 12 maybe, and then go take another walk and, you know, then a couple hours in the early afternoon. And then at night, it's more conceptual for me. It's like, I'll have more thoughts. Let me, let me have a thought, not, not necessarily sitting down and writing, but conceiving something. And I'll just go write that down and, you know, get to it another time. But you know, that that works better for me at nights, probably. But then the meat and potatoes, I like to do early in the day. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, yeah, I always feel less guilty. I do the same thing. I have right in the morning. And as long as I got the writing done, then the rest of the day just feels pretty okay, you know, and then you can ruminate on other ideas as they come along. But yeah. you got the hard stuff out of the way. <laughs> yeah, you give yourself a hall pass for the rest of the yes. day. So, you know, you don't self-flagellate uh, or anything like that. So, yeah. It's a good routine, yeah. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, and, and and for some people it's different, but I I feel like yes, I'm most fresh in the morning, and that's the best time. And then you don't feel bad about not having done the writing. Yeah. Now, now I like to ask this question. I'm particularly interested in asking you this question because you've been doing right. You've been writing for so long, and everybody's answer is always different. But but for you, what has been the very best part about being a writer? And then on the flip side, what's been like the most difficult part? of being a writer? So probably the best part is every day is different. Mm. You know, to, to go to a, a job where you're working with figures or, you know, it, I, I guess most of the people in my age wanted to become lawyers, you know, and, and do that. And it just had no appeal to me whatsoever. So 
Yeah, I was writing, you know, for my town paper when I was 15 years old. And it, it just, uh, yeah, so the best part, I, I guess you can call yourself a bit of an artist and, and, and feel good about yourself that way. And it's just been my identity for so long that it just, it, it really feels natural. And to tell you the truth, I can't do anything else very well. So, <laughs> so it's, it's fortunate that I at least got this, uh, this thing that, that, that I seem to be able to, to do well enough. So that, that's been the best thing, just being creative and, and, and having each day be different and, and having your thoughts be different. And being, so that, that's the great part of it. The, the, the flip side, I, I guess lack of security, and I, I don't even, you know, it's it's kind of when you sign up to be a writer, that that's kind of part and parcel of the deal that you signed up for. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's for people who don't need that everything spelled out in front of them and and have every minute plotted out. I, I think that's part of the creative gene that that, that you have. But I suppose the downside could be a, a certain lack of security that. You are staring at a blank screen. Used to be a blank page. Now it's a blank screen. <laughs> uh, and you have to fill it. And there's some pressure in that. I've never been bothered by deadlines very much, maybe because I did come up in newspapers originally. So that, that really doesn't bother me very much. But it is intimidating to, to, to know that you have to fill that screen up. And it's not easy. And sometimes I'm sure you have this. You know, some days it's flowing and some days it's just you, you want to hit yourself over there with a hammer to see if anything can come out, you know, because it just ain't happening. Mm-hmm. So you have to bake all of that into the pie and just realize there's going to be ups and downs and good days and bad days. And, you know, not to get too down if, if you're in a if you're in a situation where it's not coming that easy. But I, I guess for some it can be intimidating. I, I suppose that's the downside to it. I've never really felt that very much. I, I feel so lucky to be able to to do what I do and to have done what I've done. I, I, I really don't have a downside to it, to tell you the truth. I, I just feel really fortunate. Hmm. Yay. I, well, I love that. You know, and I think I think you're you hit the nail on the head, right? You know, it's like to be able to do what you love and have it be different and think of different things and different angles. But also, yes, the intimidation of the blank page. I think that that's the that's the biggest thing when you're first starting out in your writing career. Once you've yeah. done it and you know you can do it, I feel like that gets a little easier, but there's always a little twinge of it still there in the background every time you sit down for yeah. something new. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I have to give a shout out to my mom, uh, who, who's not with us, but when I was a kid, she every week she took my brother and I to the children's library mm-hmm. in our town. And she said, I don't care what you read as long as you read something. So as a result, I, I devoured every book about baseball that that library had. But it wasn't. she wasn't trying to force me to do something I didn't want to do. She wanted me to do something that I did love, you know, to do, which was baseball, sports, whatever. And, and so that was a big part of words and language and English and wanting to do something with that. And that was a big part of, uh, of this whole thing uh, was her schlepping me to the children's library every week and letting me read something that I love. Yeah. Uh, so that, that was, that's a big part of it. 
yeah, reading, uh, read, 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 read. Reading is so important as a writer too, not just the writing, but the reading. I, I, I find now that I've always been a reader and my mom was a lot like that. She encouraged us to always go to the bookstore or the library and pick out something we wanted to read. Uh, but I'm a different kind of reader now that I'm a writer. Like I look at structure and I'm looking at, you know, the way things are used. It's like, it's, yeah. it's like a, it's like yeah. a higher almost level of, of reading. It's really interesting, but that's great advice. Read, 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 and make sure your kids read. Yeah. Is there one common myth about being a writer that you would like to debunk? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that you can make a lot of money. Out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. What, what, what are the myths of writing? Uh, I'm not sure what, what, what they might be. Uh, it, it, it's not an altogether easy way to, to, to make a great living, I, w I wouldn't say. I mean, it certainly would have been easier to become a lawyer if you're mm -hmm. looking, you know, if wealth is your end goal. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think that's what you want to be getting into uh, mm -hmm. as any artist, really. I mean, because, yeah, we all know the great success stories in all our fields, but it is such a minuscule percentage of the people who are <laughs> trying to do it. And that's the thing about Hollywood is it, it's such a vicious numbers game. There are so many people trying to to get into the funnel and do this and be successful at it uh so it's not i don't think any art is something you need to be getting into if wealth is your primary goal i i, I don't know if that answers that question but i think it's a good tip for people to to know if it comes to you bravo for you uh but you know chances are you know there are other easier ways to do this which anybody who owns a racehorse uh, will tell you, hey, there's a lot better investments than than owning a racehorse, but <laughs> but I happen to love this, and so I get something out of it that the stock market doesn't give me, or another investment doesn't give me. I think it's the same with writing; you get something out of it that another occupation is not going to to give you. So, yeah. Bravo! I think that was a perfect answer and so accurate. But yeah, but I think that thing that we get out of it, especially you know, like owning a racehorse or writing a book, that thing is so important to our life force. Yeah. And and that's why yeah. we do it. It's not. Yeah. It's really not about the money. It's about the art. It's about the craft. It's about the creativity. It's about the flow. That feeling you get where you're just not there and it just is nice. And then the luck. You know, we all are hoping for the sprinkling of luck. Uh, no, you're you're so right to be able to. Be proud of something that you've uh, done as a piece of art. There, there's no amount of money that that you know that that's an entirely different feeling. Uh, mm -hmm. And it, I think it's healthy for you. I, I think those are the those are the moments that uh, make for a good life. And uh, <laughs> you know, again, knock on wood, I just probably had more than my share, but uh, <laughs> but but it, it just gives you a, a, a force that you can't get. Yeah. Other things. Well, and you're talking to amazing people. I mean, yeah. and legends and celebrities. And I mean, you're I mean, what a cool life. That's so cool. Now, you mentioned uh, you're going you have another book that you're that you've pitched and uh, University of Press of Kentucky accepted. But, you know, after that, what are you curious about? Where are you heading? What's next for you, Lenny? <laughs> there is a book that uh, a friend gave me called The Overstory. And it's a, I guess it's a pretty well-known book. It, it, it has to do with the connection between people and trees 
and it sounds like a crazy idea, but the way it is done, and I forget the author's name, but it, it's 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 genius. It's absolutely genius. So I am now working on a piece of fiction, uh, and you talked about structure, how you read other authors, and you're looking at structure. The structure of this book is interweaving six different stories together and making it one in the end, but they are separate for a long time and then they come together. Well, I am working on a piece of fiction now that's based on that structural agenda. And uh, I'm very excited about it because I, I just thought it was just genius the way that that book was put together uh, and the content of it as well. So that will be part of it. I'd like to get in the car and travel some more in my life. Uh, the pandemic came right as I retired, so I've kind of been here. Um, I really enjoy going to Saratoga every summer. I've got a pretty good life. I, I can't <laughs> complain. I don't know what's next. Uh, and that's part of uh, what I love about this also is not <laughs> knowing what's next. The great writer, David Milch, in every conversation I've had with him, always tells me, if you want to hear God laugh, tell him your plans. Uh, and <laughs> I don't think there's any truer statement than that. This does not go in a in a straight line, no matter how much you plan or think you got it figured out. This thing that uh, we're living does not go in a straight line and does not go according to plan. So I, I tend to hold on loosely and uh, and, and let the ride uh, take me where it's going to take me. And, uh, you know, so far it's been New York to upstate to Tucson to LA to Nonsuch, Kentucky. And I, who, who knows, if you could plot that, there's no telling where it's going to go next. <laughs> I'm just going to let it take me. I love that. Going with the flow, you know, yeah. and just being in the moment and enjoying the ride. I mean, you've had an exceptional journey so far and I wish you nothing but more incredible success and, and more books. And I, I love that you're exploring the, the new plot line for your fiction and trying that out. That's so exciting. I have loved talking with you. This has been an incredible conversation and I feel like we could keep going and going and going. Uh, but so we don't get too long with the interview. Can you tell listeners where they can find more about you and your books? Yeah. So, so this book here, just, just so you can know, uh, uh, KentuckyPress.com is, is the university website. So you can get that there or at Amazon or at uh, Barnes and Noble, I, I guess it will be in, you know, whatever few bookstores we still have these mm -hmm. days. Uh, so, so that's there. Yeah. So Amazon actually has all of my titles, uh, S-H-U-L-M-A-N, and people tend to put extra letters in there. Uh, so so they, they have my fiction there and uh, the previous horse racing book. So, uh, and then uh, if you want to buy back issues of the blood horse, I guess. But, but really the cream of it is in head to head. So you can skip that and just go to head to head and buy, and buy that. But uh, yeah, so uh, Amazon's probably the, the easiest way to, to find out about me. And uh, although I feel like I've, I've stole my guts to you. So <laughs> kudos to you for being a great interviewer. And, and I, I really enjoyed this too. Thank you so much. Uh, I, I love doing this just because it's, I, I don't know, it's great to talk horses and it's great to talk riding with people. So I, I love it. Yes, me too. And what a compliment. I am so touched. Thank you for 
the great interviewer of, of the thoroughbred industry <laughs> called me a great interviewer. So I, I really appreciate that compliment. Thank you. Uh, and uh, thank you again for the gift of your time. I'll link to where everyone can find your books in the show notes and uh, we'll have, you know, I'll recap the episode and uh, I'd love to have you back on again so we can talk more as you have future developments. I would love to do that. And, and uh, yeah, for this uh, Phyllis George book, it would be wonderful if uh, I, it's not horses per se, but if you, if you want to stretch it a little bit, I, I, I'd, I'd love to come back. Oh, for sure. I'm so into that. Thanks for joining us this week on the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. I hope you enjoy these Q&A sessions with wonderful equine authors who love all things horses and writing, just like me. Visit my website, carlycadecreative.com, where you can read the show notes. And make sure you never miss a show by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Thank you so much for your support. Want a free guide to secrets of horse book authors? Gallop over to carlycadecreative.com forward slash wisdom to have author advice delivered instantly to your inbox. If you are an author who writes about horses and would like to be spotlighted, please let me know. Visit my contact page at carlycadecreative.com to fill out a request. I'd be happy to have you on the show too. Thank you for tuning in to the Equestrian Author Spotlight Podcast. See you next time. I'm your host, Carly Cade. Creative writing makes my spurs jingle.